Um, this is really a daunting passage to try to unpack on a Sunday morning. Uh, but we're going to dive in and we're going to look at it and uh, we're going to try to uh, draw some, some thoughts as far as, okay, what does this look like in our lives in a practical way? And in case you, you didn't catch the connection as we read, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is chapter 5 through 7. It's lengthy. This is a lot shorter. It's an abbreviated version. Uh, now, what I want you to, as you have your Bibles open or your, your phone Bible, whatever it is that you have in front of you, I want you to understand that this is not a checklist. I know we like checklists. Do this, 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 and, and we're good. This is not a checklist, but a series of descriptors not a list of things to do, but actually a snapshot of what someone who follows Jesus and embraces his kingdom looks like. Okay, so this is not meant to be a closed list. It's actually just descriptors, a snapshot of what someone who has embraced the kingdom looks like. Uh, so it could be more ample, and we, we dare not be so literalist that we miss the point of what Jesus is trying to do here. Now, Jesus is obviously making a distinction between those who are in the world, or Satan's kingdom, and uh, that video clip kind of scared most of us, I think, uh, and, and those who have embraced kingdom values and are part of, of Jesus' kingdom. And these kingdom values are best understood as attitudes and values that define life. And I think Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that contaminates him, but what comes out of the heart. In other words, the fountain of our words, our behavior, our thoughts, our choices, the fountain is actually our heart, our attitudes and values. And that's the source of our worldview. It's the source of our thoughts, our behaviors, our decisions, and our choices. So, so if you're having trouble with the smell and color of the water coming out of the tap, it won't really do to try to put some kind of a filter on it. You need to go to the source and fix the source. And so that's what we're doing. When you and I try so hard to fix our behavior, it's actually doesn't work that well. At least I haven't found it to be that. We have to actually fix the source of the behavior. In another sense, Jesus is also describing what righteousness, obedience, and holiness look like. And you'll notice in the text that Paul read that although there's a crowd present, Jesus is addressing his disciples. He's directing his words to his disciples. And the call to obedience here, or to the level of obedience that Jesus is making, is actually not possible for a pre-Christian. The majority of world religions, I guess my wire is not great, eh? Uh, the, the majority of world religions have some sort of an ethical system, whether it's the five Ks of Sikhism or the ethical system of Islam, etc., etc., uh, Buddhism. Almost all of the world religions have some ethical system, but all of them require human effort. Sorry, Dwayne, I'll try and hold it at the same spot so you don't have to fight with me. 
Uh, they all require human effort to achieve it. And of course, human effort, effort never gets us there. We actually can't do it in our own strength. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so really, this, this sermon can't really be preached before Pentecost. It's, it's, it's an impossible task. Well, let's look at the first part. And, and as I've said, this is about attitudes and values. And then Jesus goes on after this discussion of blessings and woes. And he gets into a little more details about what this might look like. Uh, so first of all, we have an invitation and a warning to those that are listening. Uh, we have this declaration of blessings and in contrast, a bunch of woes. And, and by the way, uh, Matthew doesn't actually have the woes. It's Luke that has them. And there's this stark contrast between four blessings in verse 20 and to 23 and four woes in verse 24 to 26. And as you've heard me say many times, when something is repeated, that means it's important and or it means uh, this is countercultural. You really need to get this because this is going to be hard to change in your thinking. Uh, so we don't want to miss it. Uh, four times, repeated. Uh, blessing, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger, they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep, they will laugh. And then blessed men, blessed are you when men hate, exclude, insult, or reject you. Because you can rejoice, you can leap for joy, and great is your reward in heaven. But then he follows that with four woes. Woe to the rich who are already receiving comfort. Woe to the well-fed, they will go hungry. Woe to those who laugh now, they will mourn and weep. And woe to those who, who have all men speak good of you, because so did people to the prophets. Uh, again, let's not look at these four descriptors of blessings as separate groups, nor as a complete list but as elements of one portrait describing what followers of Jesus look like. And in the same way, let's not look at the four woes as a list uh, that is complete, but rather a description of those who do not embrace the kingdom of Jesus. The poor here are the pious poor. Those who are blessed because their position is in the kingdom of God. And Jesus preached to the poor but he ministers to all who are poor as a means of finding a positive response amongst those who recognize their need for God, those who depend on him, those who understand that life is outside of their control. And by the way, just in case uh, we're ducking here, uh, this is a generalization, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that basically all of us, by being born in the West, all of us as Canadians are part of the rich if we compare ourselves to a good chunk of the rest of the world. So you're not ducking out from this one. The point here is a, a point of, of dependency and where our dependency lies and the, and the temptation uh, to not depend on God. Those that hunger are promised satisfaction in the future. And uh, some commentators say that the hunger is a result of being poor and being persecuted and treated poorly. Uh, and therefore, it's a consequence of poverty. The text looks at both the spiritual poverty and also uh, physical poverty. But you and I can be blessed. 
And then, of course, those who are, are hungry and are poor are also sad because of the strain of life. And we want to recognize that God sees our tears, and our tears will become smiles. Dis disappointment and pain will turn into joy. The last key of this uh, text, remark, um, remarking about blessings, has to do with the religious uh, dimensions here. And I realize that, in part, this isn't, doesn't resonate with us that easily. In Jesus' day, people suffered hatred, insult, and rejection, and exclusion from the Jewish community because they identified with Jesus. And so, uh, in fact, they were given an evil name, the text says, because they had come to Jesus. Obviously, this marks persecution, and many of us probably don't experience a lot of persecution. See, religious convictions were not a private matter in the ancient times, uh, just like many countries that are non-Western today, it's not a private matter. A choice to follow Jesus meant the loss of family fellowship, dismissal from the synagogue, and removal from social contact. And, and although I don't want to step on toes this morning, it reminded me of some of my interactions with some conservative Mennonites, old colony Mennonites, who have made a, a declaration of faith and have been severely ostracized and punished for that, uh, especially in Latin America. So there are those who make a choice for Jesus, and then that ends up being a very costly choice. It's quite likely that in our text, uh, people that chose to follow Jesus were tossed out of the synagogue and viewed as unclean, and yet they could rejoice. It's interesting, our text, the, all of these are promises here except for verse 23. There's a call to rejoice. There's a call to rejoice. It's the only command in this passage. Everything else is promise. And as I said, we have four woes that match and contrast the four blessings. Uh, the rich are singled out because they often take advantage of the poor. And as I have said, this is a generalization. In fact, many who are well off respond to the gospel. The point isn't uh, how many zeros are behind your income. The point is whether you trust in God and respond to the gospel. The warning is serious because our, our wealth can create a sense of independence that results in distance from God and callousness to those around us. And in the text, their comfort is their wealth. In other words, they trust in their wealth, and actually we can't take it with us. The second woe is against those who are well-fed now, and the reversal is that they will be hungry at the judgment day. Those who ignore God and place their hope solely on the good life here will have little comfort in the future, and those who laugh now will mourn and weep because they are enthralled with life here and are not concerned about others. Our, our text of blessings and woes is followed by a call to love and mercy. And here I think Jesus actually gives us some descriptors of what this actually looks like on the ground. What does it look like? Uh, what is the disciples' character and calling in terms of loving uh, each other and loving their neighbor? Fundamental to ethics is love. And not love the way the world loves, but a unique love that endures. 
Love demonstrates mercy just like the Father. And you'll notice as, uh, as we look at this passage that what's, what we're called to here is to demonstrate, to imitate the Father, to love like the Father does. We're, we're called to that standard. The result is hesitancy to judge and readiness to forgive. Uh, that's the first thing that Jesus highlights. Uh, we are to forgive and we're to be hesitant to judge. It's always good to remind ourselves that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that all of us come to the cross on the same terms. None of us come with merit, personal merit and abilities. We come with nothing to offer. We're all sinners saved by grace. And that should help us to not be quite so judgmental of others. The love Jesus commands is not an abstract love either, tucked away in a person's inner recesses, but a love that demonstrates itself in concrete action. As Luke says, we are to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who hate us. We are to bless those who curse us. We are to pray for those who abuse us. So again, he repeats the same thought in four different ways to, to hammer away the idea that you and I are supposed to love others. This is an exhortation to action, not just a private expression to God. We are to love constantly. Then Luke goes further and picks up on Jesus' descriptions four concrete examples of what love might look like. And again, these are just samples. There are many more. The first one, turning the cheek. To turn the cheek pictures a person that is slapped out of rejection. And I, I know we think this is so literal, and so if nobody slaps me, then of course I don't have to turn the cheek. Uh, we have to think beyond the literal. Uh, the action here probably involved an insult that might be associated with removal from the synagogue. And we have numerous examples in the book of Acts of that kind of violence and how the believers responded. The early church turned the other cheek. They shared the gospel with those who rejected them. They never fought back in kind, but attempted to overcome evil with good. So first of all, we are called to turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Secondly, our second picture is one of being vulnerable. Those who take the other outer garment should also be allowed to have the undershirt. Now, the text is not saying that you're supposed to allow yourself to be stripped naked at Portage and Maine and then stand there. Uh, I think that would be an exaggeration. That's not really what's contemplated here. That's not what Jesus is suggesting. But in ministry, and as we witness to Christ, we will do so in a context of rejection. And that might include economic isolation. It requires being vulnerable over and over again. And I know we hate to be vulnerable. I don't like to be vulnerable either. Uh, but Jesus calls us to that. Thirdly, Jesus calls the disciple to be compassionate and generous, giving to the needy. Now, it's clear that almsgiving to the poor was an important part of Jewish piety. And Jesus' comments fit into that background. Our compassion needs to be a fundamental expression of our love, and it's tangible, it's action as we show our love. And then the fourth illustration involves retribution for wrong. Jesus does not want a disciple to seek to get back what has been taken from him. 
I think this exhortation involves amazing restraint. It's hard. I know it's hard. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 suggests that it's better to be defrauded than to bring a reproach on Jesus' name. Those who fight against the disciples should be treated differently by the disciples. We are to love them. We are to understand, as we don't retaliate, that actually God is watching over us. So we don't need to retaliate. We can leave our, our situation in God's hands. And actually, the greatest vindication of all is to transform the enemy into a friend of God through the example of love. Luke follows this uh, in verse 31 with the golden rule, a call to love. And essentially, this means to be sensitive to the needs of others, deferring to how they prefer to be treated. That kind of love requires great sensitivity and empathy and a spirit that desires to hear what others have to say. That's another way of showing respect to them. Jesus drives that point home with a series of questions in verse 32 to 34. And he radicalizes this love that you and I are supposed to demonstrate. Sinners show love to their friends he says, but we are to show love to everyone else. The call of the disciple is to a greater love, a distinct love, a unique love. It is a call to Jesus' love. And we use our resources as well to meet the needs of others. We don't land in such a way as expecting a return or expecting to borrow later on in the future. We are to be generous with others around us. So Jesus says, love your enemies, do good, lend while expecting nothing back, and expect a reward from the God who lives in heaven. We are called to love, and we're called to be Jesus' hands and feet uh, with those that we come in contact with. That kind of love represents the presence of the children of God who then reflect the character of God. And as I said before, we can't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. And to be his child is to reveal his character. The standard of our behavior is the merciful character of God. We go beyond just being thankful for the relationship that God has given us when he forgave us to reflecting God's graciousness to those around us and being merciful and forgiving as well. We are called to live that out as we demonstrate mercy, grace, and love to those around us. There are a couple of ditches that you and I have to avoid on this road of faith. One of those ditches or potential ditches is the ditch of legalism, a work-based treadmill where we, we think that we have to work our way into heaven and we, we get on to a legalistic, works-based focus. You and I behave and we act in a certain way out of gratitude, not out of an effort to achieve or earn or gain what can only be received as a gift. I think the other ditch beside the road of faith is that of watering things down to make them more attainable. 
And there are those who have tried to wipe aside the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus' ethic here and said, well, this is unattainable and this is only for when you get to heaven. This is what the kingdom of God will look like in heaven. And I believe that actually it is a call to begin to live this way here and now as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we are called to be transformed. We are called to patience. We are called to sacrifice and to show this exceptional love to those around us. It's a hard path, but it's a path that we can walk with the help of the Holy Spirit. Our acceptance comes from the Father, whom we seek to imitate, and our security and significance is anchored in Him and His acceptance of us. So we are free to love the way Jesus loved. He reached out to the poor and the marginalized, because they often responded in recognition of their need. And when the church reaches out to others around them in the world, those especially that are considered insignificant, the church is being uh, a reflection of God's love to them. Now, I'd like to say also that when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, that love must also be seen in the way we communicate with those who possess different values and ideas from our own. And in case you need me to help you read between the lines, I am referring to some of the communication that I've noticed on social media and other places that I would say does not fit the pattern here. And I'm not going to declare that one side is right and the other side is wrong. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. What I'm saying is that whatever your and my opinions are about our present situation, we are still called to communicate in love, in empathy and concern with those around us. Uh, we don't vilify, we, we, don't, uh, we don't pull out heavy terminology, we don't cut people to shreds. That's not Christ-like behavior. And I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Uh, you know, when you read a, a, a row of comments on Facebook and you know those folks and you see them brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, shooting darts at each other. You want to engage, but don't. Don't. We are not to be insensitive or to harbor a misunderstanding toward others or to respond in a hateful way. Let us be known by our love. Let us be known by our forgiveness and our non-judgmental attitudes. There's another aspect to this um, that is assumed. If we are to love our enemies, then this assumes a relational contact with the outside world. Uh, the ability to be struck on the cheek means that we are within striking distance. Um, and, and I, as you know, often rail against what I call a fortress mentality where we, we hole up in the church and we, we gather with like-minded people and we're all great and we sing kumbaya and, and it's all good. And, and yes, we do need to, to encourage each other and support each other, but I don't think that this retreat mentality is what Jesus calls us to do. When we fail to reach out and to love in a world that so badly needs it, we fail to reveal the loving and merciful character of God. 
Perhaps one of the reasons that evangelism fails is because people cannot see evidence of the grace of God in the church's relationship to herself or to others. Um, let it not be said of us that we uh, do not demonstrate love to each other or to those around us. As we grow in our understanding and appreciation of what God has done for us, we are better prepared to reflect his character to others. Life is built on character, and character is built on decisions. But decisions are based on values, and the upside-down values of Jesus' kingdom must be accepted, embraced, and lived out in faith. And you and I can do that, not in perfection, but we can do that as we trust and lean on the Holy Spirit each and every day to help us walk that road. And as we walk that out there, where our light is so badly needed, where our love is so badly needed. Uh, let's pray and then I'll ask Andrew to come up and, and we'll deal with whatever comments or questions there are. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this uh, amazing call to love like Jesus. Uh, this is not easy. And uh, both the temptations of the devil and the temptations of our flesh uh, so often pull us in opposite directions. Uh, but we have the Holy Spirit uh, ready and willing not to uh, overthrow us, but to empower us, to help us as we seek the filling of the Holy Spirit to move forward in love, in faith, and in obedience to you. So, Father, we ask that this week as we go forth, uh, help us to meet those challenges uh, to be love to those around us, uh, to love like Jesus, so that the world will be drawn to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Few to start here. There we go. Um, so it begins with a quote, uh, verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And then the comment, There's a difference in being insulted because of Jesus and being insulted and mistreated because we are rude and attacking of others. It's important that we make sure we are loving others the way Jesus loved us. This includes times when we feel attacked and persecuted. I would maybe even add, especially when we feel attacked. I, I think, too, that I, I've been thinking about it. We have this, this massive urge to defend our position, and mm -hmm. I'm right. And I wish we could just let that go a little bit. Um, because I'll give you an illustration. You start telling me a story about you know, a scar that you have. And halfway through, I, I'm already thinking, that's not a scar. Let me show you my scar. And I'm no <laughs> longer listening. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the problem, that, that we aren't listening. And I'm not saying that we have to change our opinions or, or, or what we think about things, but I don't think that we're, I, I think we're not listening. Mm -hmm. And we need to listen. I, I think we need to listen. Yeah. I have to remind myself periodically that I don't do works out of an obligation to earn my salvation, but rather out of gratitude for the salvation that I've already received. 
Yeah, it's the gospel. <laughs> yeah, and it reminds me of Jesus' invitation. It's also in Luke to the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a woman comes in and and pours perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes them with her tears and and dries them with her hair, and there's this you know, if he only knew what kind of a woman it is that's touching him, this mm-hmm. criticism and. And he draws this comparison, and he says, the one that is forgiven much loves much. The issue isn't about who sinned more. That's missing the point. The point is my perception of lostness. And I think sometimes, especially those of us like myself that have grown up in a Christian home, and I appreciate that, but I might become complacent and think, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered. I haven't Mm -hmm. done drugs. I haven't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so then maybe, you know what I mean? Then yeah. my, my own sense of how much I've been forgiven is weak. Mm-hmm. That's a, and it shouldn't be. Yeah. That's a, a mere Christianity passage, I think, where Lewis says, like, those who have grown up, you know, it, your, your ease of, of accepting the Lord's forgiveness depends on your understanding of your own lostness, right? So if you know you're bad then it's easier for you to look, Lord, I throw, you know, I throw myself at the foot of the cross because you're all I have. Whereas you're like, well, I'm not as bad as this or that or this. And then suddenly it's, do I even need the Lord? You know, like that's the yeah. pipeline there, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember a friend I had uh, when I was in high school, college. I wanted to win him to the Lord. And I'm going, what do I say to him? Because he doesn't smoke or drink or, or swear. Like, <laughs> Right, yeah, and and the other thing is he was smaller than me, and and when we played hockey, if somebody would ram into the boards, I saw red. Right, and when he accepted the Lord, he said it was my testimony, and I could only think about when I wanted to defend him, right. as uh, you know, on on the ice. Um, so it's interesting our perception of sin and our hierarchy of sin, which I don't think God necessarily has the same hierarchy as we do. Yeah. And we need to recognize that we need him badly. Are there loving ways to judge? Or how can we be loving when we confront others or address sin issues? I, I like to draw a distinction between, between making an assessment of an action and judging a person. Now, I can say that, that what you just did is wrong. But I can't, because I don't know the heart, I don't know the intentions, I don't know the person, I don't see what God all sees. So I can't judge you. I can maybe judge the action, but I can't judge you. Mm-hmm. So th- that's where I would draw a distinction. I, I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that tells me that I should judge my fellow man. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as right and wrong. But I don't think we're called to judge each other because I cannot read the heart and the motives and everything else. How would you look at it? You were going to do that. <laughs> I should have um, let you go first. Yeah, yeah, that's the same to all you said. That's, yeah, that's such a, a tricky tightrope to walk, I, I find. Um, even just because... Like, I can, I can say that action's wrong, but it's wrong from where I'm standing, right? Like, maybe when, if I was in your shoes, I would have more empathy for the, 
yeah, the, the decision you're making. Now, like, sin is sin, right? But I don't want to speak into someone, yeah. How to speak into those, those, that other person's circumstances without having a judgmental spirit is... I appreciate that that perspective of having to. It's all based on relationship, right? Like how sure, totally. Yeah, it's based on relationship, is what Mo said. Well, and then there's another aspect. Um, it's ludicrous to expect a pre-Christian to behave like a Christian. Right. Exactly. I, I I think that that's this, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you didn't. And, yeah, you didn't turn the cheek. Why would I do that? There's like, no. Right. So so I I think even when we say that the church is a hospital for the sick, we recognize that we're all sick and needing God to work in our lives, but then there's also this attitude to whoever walks in the door that, that we're not judgmental because we also don't know where they're at. Mm. Now, then we move further. You and I are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're, we're both members of the church, mm. and there is a measure of accountability and responsibility to each other mm-hmm. but that's at another level and and like you said it it's best to be done positively and in the context of a relationship yeah i think there's also the angle of of people hate hypocrisy so the idea of if you're not willing to open yourself up to the same kind of uh surgical trying to remove sin or, or even doing the same thing, as bad as that would be, that I think people are more open to, to pointing things out when you are also having things pointed out in you. Yeah. Follow up here. I also think that there's a difference between judging someone and discerning that there may be places certain people don't belong based on past behaviors. Now, that has to come out of relationship, just like you're saying, Mo, but, but sure. I, think there is, I think that's fair to say. I think yeah. There's a gap there. Um, one final one here, uh, jumping back to works out of uh, uh, gratitude as opposed to obligation. This perspective changes how I feel about serving God. Not, I guess I have to do this, but rather I want to do it. It's, it's, it's gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gratitude has to be the fountain of, of that, yeah. I think. And, and for, for, I think all of us, maybe we're, we're different. Uh, my Achilles heel might be different than yours. I've told you that, uh, you know, sometimes when I drive, I'm frustrated with other drivers. Uh, and, and so I have to be careful how I respond. Uh, you know, maybe I'm talking to my mirror and calling that person an idiot or something. And, okay, so that's where I need to grow. Um, and we all have those edges. Uh, I think it's, it's about identifying what they are and then working on them. And, uh, yeah, starting the day with the Holy Spirit and asking for his help as we go through the day. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you, Andrew. Andrew.